a treatise on the mortification of sin by Dr. John Owen, written in 1656. Number two, to labor to be acquainted with the ways, wiles, methods, advantages, and occasions of its success is the beginning of this warfare. So do men deal with enemies. They inquire out their counsels and designs, ponder their ends, consider how and by what means they have formerly prevailed, that they may be prevented. And this consists of greatest skill in conduct. Take this away, and all waging of war, wherein is the greatest improvement of human wisdom and industry, would be brutish. So do they deal with lust who mortify it indeed not only when it is actually vexing, enticing, and seducing, but in their retirements they consider, this is our enemy, this is his way in progress, these are his advantages, thus hath he prevailed, and thus he will do if not prevented. So David, my sin is ever before me, Psalm 51 verse 3. And indeed, one of the choicest and most eminent parts of practically spiritual wisdom consists in finding out the subtleties, policies, and depths of any indwelling sin, to consider and know wherein its greatest strength lies, what advantage it uses to make of occasions, opportunities, temptations, what are its pleas, pretenses, reasonings, what its stratagems, colors, excuses, to set the wisdom of the Spirit against the craft of the old man, to trace this serpent in all its turnings and windings, to be able to say at its most secret, and to a common frame of heart, imperceptible actings, this is your old way in course, I know what you aim at, and so to be always in readiness is a good part of our warfare. Number three, to load it daily with all the things which shall after be mentioned that are grievous, killing, and destructive to it is the height of this contest. Such a one never thinks his lust dead because it is quiet, but labors still to give it new wounds, new blows every day. So the Apostle, Colossians 3, verse 5. Now, whilst the soul is in this condition, Whilst it is thus dealing, it is certainly uppermost. Sin is under the sword and dying. Number three, in success. Frequent success against any lust is another part and evidence of mortification. By success I understand not a mere disappointment of sin, that it be not brought forth nor accomplished, but a victory over it and pursuit of it to a complete conquest. For instance, when the heart finds sin at any time at work, seducing, forming imaginations to make provision for the flesh, to fulfill the lust thereof, it instantly apprehends sin and brings it to the law of God and love of Christ, condemns it, follows it with execution to the uttermost. Now, I say, when a man comes to this state and condition, that lust is weakened in the root and principle, that its motions and actions are fewer and weaker than formerly, so that they are not able to hinder his duty nor interrupt his peace, when he can, in a quiet, sedate frame of spirit, find out and fight against sin and have success against it, 
then sin is mortified in some considerable measure, and notwithstanding all its opposition, a man may have peace with God all his days. Unto these heads, then, do I refer the mortification aimed at, that is, of any one perplexing distemper, whereby the general pravity and corruption of our nature attempts to exert and put forth itself, first, the weakening of its indwelling disposition, whereby it inclines, entices, impales to evil, rebels, opposes, fights against God, by the implanting habitual residence and cherishing of a principle of grace that stands in direct opposition to it and is destructive of it, is the foundation of it. So by the implanting and growth of humility is pride weakened, passion by patience, uncleanness by purity of mind and conscience, love of this world by heavenly mindedness, which are graces of the Spirit, or the same habitual grace variously accounting itself by the Holy Ghost, according to the variety or diversity of the objects about which it is exercised, as the other are several less, or the same natural corruption variously acting itself, accordingly to the various advantages and occasions that it meets withal. The promptness, alacrity, vigor of the spirit or new man in contending with, cheerful fighting against, the lust spoken of by all the ways and with all the means that are appointed thereunto, constantly using the suckers provided against its motions and actings is a second thing hereunto required. Success unto several degrees attends these two. Now this... If the distemper hath not an unconquerable advantage from its natural situation, may possibly be to such a universal conquest, as the soul may never more sensibly feel its opposition, and shall, however, assuredly arise to an allowance of peace to the conscience, according to the tenor of the covenant of grace. Chapter 7 the ways and means whereby a soul may proceed to the mortification of any particular lust and sin, which Satan takes advantage by to disquiet and weaken him, come next under consideration. Now, there are some good general considerations to be premised concerning some principles and foundations of this work, without which no man in the world, be he never so much raised by convictions and resolved for the mortification of any sin, can attain thereunto. General rules and principles, without which no sin will be ever mortified, are these. Number one, unless a man be a believer, that is, one that is truly engrafted into Christ, can he never mortify any one sin. I do not say unless he knows himself to be so, but unless indeed he be so. Mortification is a work of believers, Romans 8, 13. If ye through the Spirit, and so on. Ye believers to whom there is no condemnation, verse 1. They alone are exhorted to do it, Colossians 3, verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Who should mortify? You who are risen with Christ, verse 1 whose life is hid with Christ in God, verse 3, who shall appear with him in glory, verse 4. An unregenerate man may do something like it, but the work itself, so as it may be acceptable with God, he can never perform. 
You know what a picture of it is drawn in some of the philosophers, Seneca, Tuli, Epictetus. What affectionate discourses they have of contempt of the world and self, of regulating and conquering all exorbitant affections and passions. The lives of most of them manifested that their maxims differed as much from true mortification as the sun painted on a signpost from the sun in the firmament. They had neither light nor heat. Their own Lucian sufficiently manifests what they all were. There is no death of sin without the death of Christ. You know what attempts there are made after it by the papists in their vows, penances, and satisfactions, I dare say of them, I mean as many of them as act upon the principles of their church as they call it, what Paul says of Israel in point of righteousness, Romans 9, 31 and 32, they have followed after mortification, but they have not attained to it. Wherefore, because they seek it not by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. The same is the state and condition of all amongst ourselves, who in obedience to their convictions and awakened consciences do attempt a relinquishment of sin. They follow after it, but they do not attain it. It is true, it is, it will be required of every person, whatever that hears the law or gospel preach, that he mortifies sin. It is his duty, but it is not his immediate duty. It is his duty to do it, but to do it in God's way. If you require your servant to pay so much money for you in such a place, but first to go and take it up in another, it is his duty to pay the money appointed and you will blame him if he do it not. Yet it was not his immediate duty. He was first to take it up according to your direction. So it is in this case, sin is to be mortified, but something is to be done in the first place to enable us thereunto. I have proved that it is the Spirit alone that can mortify sin. He has promised to do it, and all other means without him are empty and vain. How shall he then mortify sin that hath not the Spirit? A man may easier see without eyes, speak without a tongue, than truly mortify one sin without the Spirit. Now, how is he attained? It is the Spirit of Christ. And as the Apostle says, If we have not the Spirit of Christ, we are none of His. Romans 8, 9. So if we are Christ, have an interest in Him, we have the Spirit, and so alone have the power for mortification. This the Apostle discourses at large, Romans 8, 8. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It is the inference and conclusion he makes of his foregoing discourse about our natural state and condition, and the enmity we have unto God and his law therein. If we are in the flesh, if we have not the Spirit, we cannot do anything that should please God. But what is our deliverance from this condition? Verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Ye believers that have the Spirit of Christ, you are not in the flesh. There is no way of deliverance from the state and condition of being in the flesh, but by the Spirit of Christ. And what if the Spirit of Christ be in you? Why then you are mortified? Verse 10. The body is dead because of sin, or unto it. Mortification is carried on. The new man is quickened to righteousness. This the Apostle proves, verse 11, from the union we have with Christ by the Spirit, which will produce suitable operations in us to what it wrought in Him.
All attempts, then, for mortification of any lust without an interest in Christ are vain. Many men that are galled with and for sin, the arrows of Christ for conviction, by the preaching of the word or some affliction, having been made sharp in their hearts, do vigorously set themselves against this or that particular lust, wherewith their consciences have been most disquieted or perplexed. But poor creatures... They labor in the fire, and their work consumeth. When the Spirit of Christ comes to this work, He will be like a refiner's fire, and like a fuller's soap. And He will purge men as gold and as silver. Malachi 3, 2 and 3. Take away their dross and tin, their filth and blood, as Isaiah 4, verse 4. But men must be gold and silver in the bottom, or else refining will do them no good. The prophet gives us a sad issue of wicked men's utmost attempts for mortification by what means soever that God affords them. Jeremiah 6, 29 and 30. The bellows are burned, and the lead is consumed of the fire. The founder melteth in vain. Reprobate silver shall men call them, because the Lord hath rejected them. And what is the reason hereof? Verse 28. They were brass and iron when they were put into the furnace. Men may refine brass and iron long enough before they will be good silver. I say then, mortification is not the present business of unregenerate men. God calls them not to it as yet. Conversion is their work. The conversion of the whole soul, not the mortification of this or that particular lust. You would laugh at a man that you should see setting up a great fabric and never take any care for a foundation, especially if you should see him so foolish as that, having a thousand experiences that what he built one day fell down another, he would yet continue in the same course. So it is with convinced persons, though they plainly see that what ground they get against sin one day they lose another, yet they will go on in the same road still, without inquiring where the destructive flaw in their progress lies. When the Jews, upon the conviction of their sin, were cut to the heart, Acts 2.37, and cried out, What shall we do? What doth Peter direct them to do? Does he bid them go and mortify their pride, wrath, malice, cruelty, and the like? No. He knew that was not their present work. But he calls them to conversion and faith in Christ in general. Verse 38. Let the soul be first thoroughly converted, and then, looking on him whom they have pierced, humiliation and mortification will ensue. Thus, when John came to preach repentance and conversion, he said, The axe is now laid to the root of the tree, Matthew 3, verse 10. The Pharisees had been laying heavy burdens, imposing tedious duties, and rigid means of mortification in fastings, washings, and the like. All in vain, says John, the doctrine of conversion is for you, the axe in my hand is laid to the root. And our Savior tells us what is to be done in this case. Says he, do men gather grapes from thorns, Matthew 7:16. But suppose a thorn be well pruned and cut, and have pains taken with him, yea, but he will never bear figs, verse 17 and 18. It cannot be, but every tree will bring forth fruit according to its own kind. 
What is then to be done, he tells us, Matthew 12:33. Make the tree good, and his fruit will be good. The root must be dealt with. The nature of the tree changed, or no good fruit will be brought forth. This is what I aim at. Unless a man be regenerate, unless he be a believer, all attempts that he can make for mortification, be they never so specious and promising, all means he can use, let him follow them with never so much diligence, earnestness, watchfulness, and intention of mind and spirit, are to no purpose. In vain shall he use many remedies, he shall not be healed. Yea, there are sundry desperate evils attending an endeavor to convince persons that are no more but soul to perform this duty. 1. The mind and soul is taken up about that which is not the man's proper business, and so he is diverted from that which is so. God lays hold by his word and judgments on some sin in him, gulls his conscience, disquiets his heart, deprives him of his rest, now other diversions will not serve his turn. He must apply himself to the work before him. The business in hand being to awake the whole man unto a consideration of the state and condition wherein he is, that he might be brought home to God. Instead hereof he sets himself to mortify the sins that galls him, which is a pure issue of self-love to be freed from all his trouble, and not at all to the work he is called unto, and so is diverted from it. Thus God tells us of Ephraim, when he spread his net upon them, and brought them down as the fowls of heaven, and chastised them. Hosea 7.12 Caught them, entangled them, convinced them that they could not escape, saith he of them, they returned, but not to the Most High. They set themselves to a relinquishment of sin, but not in that matter, by universal conversion as God called for it. Thus are men diverted from coming unto God by the most glorious ways that they can fix upon to come to Him by. And this is one of the most common deceits whereby men ruin their own souls. I wish that some whose trade is to daub with untempered mortar in the things of God did not teach this deceit and cause the people to err by their ignorance. What do men do, what oft times are they directed unto, when their consciences are galled by sin, and disquietment from the Lord who hath laid hold upon them? Is not a relinquishment of the sin, as to practice, that they are in some fruits of it perplexed withal, and making head against it the sum of what they apply themselves unto? And is not the gospel end of their convictions lost thereby? Here men abide and perish. Number two, this duty being a thing good in itself, in its proper place, a duty evidencing sincerity, bringing home peace to the conscience, a man finding himself really engaged in it, his mind and heart set against this or that sin, with purpose and resolution to have no more to do with it, he is ready to conclude that his state and condition is good, and so to delude his own soul. For, one, when his conscience hath been made sick with sin, and he could find no rest, when he should go to the great physician of souls, and get healing in his blood, the man by this engagement against sin pacifies and quiets his conscience, and sits down without going to Christ at all. 
Oh, how many poor souls are thus deluded to eternity. When Ephraim saw his sickness, he sent to King Jerob, Hosea 5.13, which kept him off from God. The whole bundle of the popish religion is made up of designs and contrivances to pacify conscience without Christ, all described by the Apostle, Romans 10, verse 3. Two, by this means men satisfy themselves that their state and condition is good, seeing they do that which is a work good in itself, and they do not do it to be seen. They know they would have the work done in sincerity, and so are hardened in a kind of self-righteousness. 3. When a man hath thus for a season been deluded, and has deceived his own soul, and finds in a long course of life that indeed his sin is not mortified, or if he hath changed one, he hath gotten another, he begins at length to think that all contending is in vain. He shall never be able to prevail. He is making a dam against water that increaseth on him. Hereupon he gives over, is one despairing of any success, and yields up himself to the power of sin and that habit of formality that he hath gotten. And this is the usual issue with persons attempting the mortification of sin without an interest in Christ first obtained. It deludes them. It hardens them destroys them. Therefore we see that there are not usually more vile and desperate sinners in the world than such as, having by conviction been put on this course, have found it fruitless and deserted it without a discovery of Christ. And this is the substance of the religion and godliness of the choicest formalists in the world and of all those in the Roman synagogue are drawn to mortification as they drive Indians to baptism or cattle to water. I say then that mortification is a work of believers and believers only. To kill sin is a work of living men. Where men are dead, as all unbelievers, the best of them are dead, sin is alive and will live. It is a work of faith, the peculiar work of faith. Now, if there be a work to be done that will be effected by only one instrument, it is the greatest madness for any to attempt the doing of it that hath not that instrument. Now, it is faith that purifies the heart, Acts 15, verse 9, or as Peter speaks, we purify our souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, 1 Peter 1, 22, and without it, it will not be done. What has been spoken, I suppose, is sufficient to make good my first general rule. Be sure to get an interest in Christ if you intend to mortify any sin. Without it, it never will be done. Objection. You will say, what then would you have unregenerate men that are convinced of the evil of sin do? Shall they cease striving against sin? Live dissolutely? give their lust their swing, and be as bad as the worst of men? This were a way to set the whole world into confusion, to bring all things into darkness, to set open the floodgates of lust, and lay the rain upon the necks of men to rush into all sin with delight and greediness like the horse into the battle. Answer 1. God forbid! It is to be looked on as a great issue of the wisdom, goodness, and love of God, 
that by manifold ways and means he is pleased to restrain the sons of men from running forth into that compass of excess and riot which the depravedness of their nature would carry them out unto with violence. By what way soever this is done, it is an issue of the care, kindness, and goodness of God without which the whole earth would be a hell of sin and confusion. Number two, there is a peculiar convincing power in the word which God is oftentimes pleased to put forth to the wounding, amazing, and in some sort humbling of sinners, though they are never converted. And the word is to be preached, though it hath this end, yet not without this end. Let then the word be preached, and the sins of men will be rebuked. Lust will be restrained, and some opposition will be made against sin, though that be not the effect aimed at. Though this be the work of the Word and Spirit, and it be good in itself, yet it is not profitable nor available as to the main end in them in whom it is wrought, they are still in the gall of bitterness and under the power of darkness. Let men know it is their duty, but in its proper place. I take not men from mortification, but put them upon conversion. He that shall call a man from mending a hole in the wall of his house to quench a fire that is consuming the whole building is not his enemy. Poor soul, it is not thy sore finger but thy hectic fever that thou art to apply thyself to the consideration of. Thou settest thyself against a particular sin and dost not consider that thou art nothing but sin. Let me add this to them who are preachers of the word, or intend through the good hand of God that employment. It is their duty to plead with men about their sins, to lay hold on particular sins, but always remember that it be done with that which is the proper end of law and gospel. That is, that they make use of the sin they speak against to the discovery of the state and condition wherein the sinner is. Otherwise, haply, they may work men to formality and hypocrisy, but little of the true end of preaching the gospel will be brought about. It will not avail to beat a man off from his drunkenness into a sober formality. A skillful master of the assemblies lays his axe at the root, dries steel at the heart. To inveigh against particular sins of ignorant, unregenerate persons, such as the land is full of, is a good work, but yet though it may be done with a great efficacy, vigor, and success, if this be all the effect of it, that they are set upon the most sedulous endeavors of mortifying their sins preached down, all that is done is but like the beating of an enemy in an open field, and driving him into an impregnable castle not to be, be prevailed against. Get you at any time a sinner at the advantage on the account of any one sin whatever? Have you anything to take hold of him by? Bring it to his state and condition. Drive it up to the head, and there deal with him. To break men off particular sins, and not to break their hearts, is to deprive ourselves 
of advantages of dealing with them. And herein is the Roman mortification grievously peccant. They drive all sorts of persons to it without the least consideration whether they have a principle for it or no. Yea, they are so far from calling on men to believe that they may be able to mortify their lust that they call men to mortification instead of believing. The truth is, they neither know what it is to believe nor what mortification itself intends. Faith with them is but a general assent to the doctrine taught in their church. And mortification, the betaking of a man by a vow to some certain course of life wherein he denies himself something of the use of the things of this world, not without a considerable compensation. Such men know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Their boasting of their mortification is but their glorying in their shame. Some casuists among ourselves, who, overlooking the necessity of regeneration, do avowedly give this for a direction to all sorts of persons that complain of any sin or lust, that they should vow against it, at least for a season, a month or so, seem to have a scantling of light in the mystery of the gospel, much like that of Nicodemus when he came first to Christ. They bid men vow to abstain from their sin for a season. This commonly makes their lust more impetuous. Perhaps with great perplexity they keep their word, perhaps not, which increases their guilt and torment. Is their sin at all mortified hereby? Do they find a conquest over it? Is their condition changed, though they attain a relinquishment of it? Are they not still in the gall of bitterness? Is not this to put men to make brick, if not without straw, yet which is worth without strength? What promise hath any unregenerate man to countenance him in this work? What assistance for the performance of it? Can sin be killed without an interest in the death of Christ, or mortified without the Spirit? If such direction should prevail to change men's lives, as seldom they do, yet they never reach to the change of their hearts or conditions. It grieves me oft times to see poor souls that have a zeal for God and a desire of eternal welfare kept by such directors and directions under a hard, burdensome, outside worship and service of God with many specious endeavors for mortification in an utter ignorance of the righteousness of Christ and unacquaintedness with His Spirit all their days. Persons and things of this kind I know too many. If ever God shine into their hearts to give them the knowledge of His glory in the face of His Son Jesus Christ, they will see the folly of their present way. Chapter 8. The second principle which to this purpose I shall propose is this. Without sincerity and diligence in a universality of obedience, there is no mortification of any one perplexing lust to be obtained. The other was to the person, this to the thing itself. I shall a little explain this position. A man finds any lust to bring him into the condition formerly described. It is powerful, strong, tumultuating, 
leads captive, vexes, disquiet, takes away peace. He is not able to bear it. Wherefore he sets himself against it, prays against it, groans under it, sighs to be delivered, but in the meantime perhaps in other duties, in constant communion with God, in reading prayer and meditation, in other ways that are not of the same kind with the lust wherewith he is troubled, he is loose and negligent. Let not that man think that ever he shall arrive to the mortification of the lust, he is perplexed withal. This is a condition that not seldom befalls men in their pilgrimage. The Israelites, under a sense of their sin, drew nigh to God with much diligence and earnestness, with fasting and prayer. Isaiah 58 Many expressions are made of their earnestness in the work. Verse 2 They seek me daily and delight to know my ways. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching to God. But God rejects all. Their fast is a remedy that will not heal them. And the reason given of it, verses 5 to 7, is because they were particular in this duty. They attended diligently to that, but in others were negligent and careless. He that hath a running sore, it is a scripture expression, upon him, arising from an ill habit of body, contracted by intemperance and ill diet, let him apply himself with what diligence and skill he can to the cure of his sore. If he leave the general habit of his body under distempers, his labor and travail will be in vain. So will his attempts be that shall endeavor to stop a bloody issue of sin and filth in his soul, and is not equally careful of his universal spiritual temperature and constitution for, one, this kind of endeavor for mortification proceeds from a corrupt principle, ground, and foundation, so that it will never proceed to a good issue. The true and acceptable principles of mortification shall be afterward insisted on. Hatred of sin as sin, not only as galling or disquieting, a sense of the love of Christ in the cross lie at the bottom of all true spiritual mortification. Now it is certain that that which I speak of proceeds from self-love. Thou settest thyself with all diligence and earnestness to mortify such a lust or sin? What is the reason of it? It disquiets thee. It hath taken away thy peace. It fills thy heart with sorrow and trouble and fear. Thou hast no rest because of it. Yea, but, friend, thou hast neglected prayer or reading. Thou hast been vain and loose in thy conversation in other things that have not been of the same nature with that lust wherewith thou art perplexed. These are no less sins and evils than those under which thou groanest. Jesus Christ bled for them also. Why dost thou not set thyself against them also? If thou hatest sin as sin every evil way, thou wouldst be no less watchful against everything that grieves and disquiets the Spirit of God than against that which grieves and disquiets thine own soul. It is evident that thou contendest against sin merely because of thy own trouble by it. Would thy conscience be quiet under it, thou wouldst let it alone. 
did it not disquiet thee, it should not be disquieted by thee. Now canst thou think that God will set in with such hypocritical endeavors that ever his spirit will bear witness to the treachery and falsehood of thy spirit? Doth thou think he will ease thee of that which perplexeth thee, that thou mayest be at liberty to that which no less grieves him? No, says God. Here is one, if he could be rid of this lust, I should never hear of him more. Let him wrestle with this, or he is lost. Let not any man think to do his own work that will not do God's. God's work consists in universal obedience. To be freed of the present perplexity is their own only. Hence is that of the Apostle, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1. Cleanse yourselves from all pollutions of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. If we will do anything, we must do all things. So then, it is not only an intense opposition to this or that peculiar lust, but a universal humble frame and temper of heart, with watchfulness over every evil, and for the performance of every duty that is accepted. Number two, how knowest thou but that God has suffered the lust wherewith thou hast been perplexed, to get strength in thee, and power over thee, to chasten thee for thy other negligences, and common lukewarmness, and walking before him, at least to awaken thee to the consideration of thy ways, that thou mayest make a thorough work and change in thy course of walking with him. The rage and predominancy of a particular lust is commonly the fruit and issue of a careless, negligent course in general, and that upon a double account, number one, as its natural effect, if I may so say. Lust, as I showed in general, lies in the heart of everyone, even the best while he lives. And think not that the scripture speaks in vain, that it is subtle, cunning, crafty, that it seduces, entices, fights, rebels. Whilst a man keeps a diligent watch over his heart, its root and foundation, whilst above all keepings he keeps his heart, whence are the issues of life and death? Lust withers and dies in it. But if, through the negligence, it make an eruption any particular way, gets a passage to the thoughts by the affections, and from them and by them perhaps breaks out into open sin in the conversation, the strength of it bears that way it hath found out, and that way mainly it urgeth, until having got a passage, it then vexes and disquiets and is not easily to be restrained. Thus, perhaps, a man may be put to wrestle all his days in sorrow with that which, by a strict and universal watch, might easily have been prevented. Number two, as I said, God oftentimes suffers it to chasten our other negligences, for as with wicked men he gives them up to one sin as the judgment of another, a greater for the punishment of a less, or one that will hold them more firmly and securely for that which they might have possibly obtained a deliverance from, so even with his own he may, he doth leave them sometimes to some vexatious distempers 
either to prevent or cure some other evil. So was the messenger of Satan let loose on Paul, that he might not be lifted up through the abundance of spiritual revelations. Was it not a correction to Peter's vain confidence that he was left to deny his master? Now, if this be the state and condition of lust in its prevalency, that God oftentimes suffers its soul to prevail, at least to admonish us and to humble us, perhaps to chasten and correct us for our general loose and careless walking, is it possible that the effect should be removed and the cause continued, that the particular lust should be mortified and the general course be unreformed? He, then, that would really, thoroughly, and acceptably mortify any disquieting lust, let him take care to be equally diligent in all parts of obedience, and know that every lust, every omission of duty is burdensome to God, though but one is sold to Him. Whilst there abides a treachery in the heart to indulge to any negligence in not pressing universally to all perfection and obedience, the soul is weak as not giving faith to its whole work, and selfish as considering more the trouble of sin than the filth and guilt of it, and lives under a constant provocation of God so that it may not expect any comfortable issue in any spiritual duty that it doth undertake, much less in this under-consideration, which requires another principle and frame of spirit for its accomplishment. Chapter 9 The foregoing general rules being supposed, particular directions to the soul for its guidance under the sense of a disquieting lust or distemper, being the main thing I aim at, come next to be proposed. Now, of these some are previous and preparatory, and in some of them the work itself is contained. Of the first sort are these ensuing. First, consider what dangerous symptoms thy lust hath attending or accompanying it, whether it hath any deadly mark on it or no. If it hath, extraordinary remedies are to be used. An ordinary course of mortification will not do it. You will say, what are these dangerous marks and symptoms, the desperate attendancies of an indwelling lust that you intend? Some of them I shall name. One, inveterateness. If it hath lain long corrupting in thy heart, if thou hast suffered it to abide in power and prevalency, without attempting vigorously the killing of it, and the healing of the wounds thou hast received by it, for some long season, thy distemper is dangerous. Hast thou permitted worldliness, ambition, greediness of study, to eat up other duties, the duties wherein thou oughtest to hold constant communion with God for some long season? or uncleanness to defile thy heart with vain and foolish and wicked imaginations for many days, thy lust hath a dangerous symptom. So was the case with David. Psalm 38, verse 5. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. When a lust hath lain long in the heart, corrupting, festering, cankering. It brings the soul to a woeful condition. 
In such a case, an ordinary course of humiliation will not do the work. Whatever it be, it will by this means insinuate itself more or less into all the faculties of the soul, and habituate the affections to its company and society. It grows familiar to the mind and conscience, that they do not startle at it as a strange thing but are bold with it as that which they are wanted unto. Yea, it will get such advantage by this means as oftentimes to exert and put forth itself without having any notice taken of it at all, as it seems to have been with Joseph and his worrying by the life of Pharaoh. Unless some extraordinary course be taken, such a person hath no ground in the world to expect that his latter end shall be peace. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D, M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.